Patrick, I know you've been in Hawaii now for almost two weeks and I'm sure you're homesick, but you know what? The good thing is it's our favorite time of the week. What time it's, is that, Chris? It's time for another episode of Dark and Devious. Yay. Yay. Let's get this started. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Dark and Devious. Patrick here, and I just want to say aloha to all of our listeners right now. Mahalo for listening. Oh my gosh, you are just so darn lucky. I can't get over it, but I'm I'm very happy for you. Uh, what's been your favorite thing on your vacation so far? Well, this is um, our third time to Hawaii and, you know, the past two trips, we've gone to different islands. It's been a lot of excursions, a lot of exploring, typical sightseeing. Where this one, you know, we're just, we're just here to get out of winter and enjoy the warmth and, you know, take a break after what 2020 dealt us. Uh, so it's a very different experience. I've I've probably been spending at least four hours a day just lying on the beach or splashing in the water. Um, you know, we've eaten fresh seafood every day. Um, it's just, the temperatures have been great. It's like mid seventies with a light oh. breeze, with a light breeze and sunshine. And I'm just, I'm so happy to be here. And we only have four days left. So I'm, I'm really hoping to make the most out of the next four days of being a beach bum at oh my the highest gosh. level. <laughs> Only four more days left. Man, quite a, a trip for you, but I didn't realize that you had uh, had experience with Hawaii already. So it, it's kind of nice to be able to uh, return and just relax and, and not have to worry about like, oh, I have to see all these things because I don't know when I'm going to get to go back you've gotten to do some of those. I'm sure you've gotten to do all the touristy things on previous trips if you really wanted to. Right. Um, and yeah. and I, I kind of understand um, snowbirds now yeah. because <laughs> we found a place that's warm that we like to go to in the winter. And even though it's nothing like new and exciting, we still love it just as much. I, I think old and exciting is definitely a thing. I, I would imagine that Hawaii would definitely check that box yeah well if you ever get a chance i highly recommend you make you make the trek over yeah i would love to check out hawaii sometime i will would be more than happy to make that long flight <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you do um it's worth it uh, i i did uh see though that i've been sending some warmth back to minnesota yeah, it's working. Whatever psychic vibes you are putting out, uh, it would. We had a high of like sixty-one, I think, today, uh, on the day that we're recording this. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I left 
my apartment without a jacket on and it just felt so unnatural. And I'm like, I feel like I'm forgetting something. <laughs> and, but then I, you step outside and the snow is melting, the sun is shining and uh, it, it's got that like fresh springy scent in the air, which is like, just like, uh, we That's need a good rain. That's, That's beautiful. Yeah, it's it felt really good. I spent a lot of time running around outdoors with my partner today, so we had a really amazing day. We even had we even um, picked up some food and went to a park and, and kind of kind of had a little picnic. And man, that felt so good. It just felt amazing to be able yeah. to do that. <laughs> I, yes, so. it, it's just always so refreshing after winter when spring comes. And, you know, everything starts to get greener and uh, the, the days are longer. And, you know, like you said, you can just go hang out at a park and not, not have to worry if you're going to be warm enough. No, and I couldn't believe I had today off. It was just wonderful. <laughs> it was all the stars aligned. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I was very, very, very happy to just take the day off and enjoy it. Well, I'm happy for you. Um, I also heard that uh, while I've been enjoying my time in Hawaii, you've had a, a brush with true crime. Oh my gosh, yes. I have quite a true crime-esque story to share with you. And it's just too funny and too perfect not to share it on the podcast too. Uh, so I was coming home one evening this last week uh, from my friend's apartment who lives in the neighborhood. And I was going up a stairwell in my building. So my building has like 10 entrances. It's a huge building. And I was going up a stairwell that I don't always go up. And, and this was pretty late at night. Um, and I was, I was feeling pretty pretty good. I've been drinking some wine. And um, so I get halfway up the stairs and there's a little ledge uh, in the stairwell. And on the ledge, there is a camera bag, like a Canon camera bag. And I think, well, what is this bag doing just sitting here? I, and I, I, I can't just walk past it and not look and see what's inside. And I'm, I'm thinking at this point, I'm like, I am totally ready for either to find a really nice camera in there that someone just left, or I'm going to find a human body part. Like, I'm pretty sure it's, it could go either way. So without any kind of fear, I open the bag and whatever is in there is wrapped in plastic. And I'm thinking at this point, like this is, this is human body part territory. I, I would, I'm like, my mind would just like, it's Coke. Like <laughs> that, that's just hard drugs in there. That, I mean, that would probably be a more fun thing to come across. <laughs> uh, but so I, I'm like, well, I, again, curiosity getting the best of me maybe a little bit of wine also getting to me, but I take out whatever is wrapped in plastic and I set it on the ledge next to the bag. And then I realize it's something much 
much worse than a human body part. Like I would have rather found a human body part rather than what I found. I'm not, I have, I, I have thoughts. I don't like my thoughts. Uh, so please go on. Um, I realized it smelled so bad. And that's when I realized it was full of human waste. That is exactly what I was thinking. And I really hope you washed your hands. I did. Luckily, I didn't like get real deep into it, but I did touch the plastic. So the first thing I, I did when I got to my apartment was wash my hands. Uh, but yeah, so somebody, I and after I've been talking about this with friends, I've been, I've been hearing different ideas of theories that like maybe it was somebody who had an X or whatever in the building and, and they're like, well, I'm keeping the camera, but I'm going to make it look like I brought the camera back. And then I just like hooped in a bag and put it in the, in the camera bag bag instead. But, oh my gosh. So yeah, there is a, a, um, a stairwell pooper on the loose in my building possibly. Oh my gosh. So that was, it was outrageous. And that was just too true crime like uh to pass up telling you oh, i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean the the theory that it was like a vindictive ex uh does does make sense um but it's just so strange why a camera bag i know like uh, is this the only thing you had on you to conceal your mess that you made <laughs> and you know i'm thinking like my first thought was like, well, maybe it's someone with like Crohn's disease or or like oh. severe IBS and like they had an accident. But if they had an accident, why wouldn't they just like leave the baggie outside? Why yeah. put it in a camera bag and bring it yeah. inside? Yeah. Uh, and then leave it in a stairwell for someone to find. Because eventually the people who clean the hallways and stuff of the building they're going to come across it and they're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, I, I can't imagine what was going through that person's mind. And, uh, but it's fun to uh, speculate. Yeah. Yeah. Sure <laughs> is. Um, well, bless the, bless the heart of whichever cleaning person came across that. Did you put right. it back in the camera bag or did you just like um, leave it? I just, dropped it there and I'm like I literally and figuratively wash my hands of this situation like yeah I'm I, I am not <laughs> taking any further responsibility although one of my friends did point out that oh no now my DNA is on the my fingerprints or my DNA is on the the bag and I'm like oh no someone might <laughs> investigate but I imagine probably whoever found it just tossed it in the trash and got rid of it and was done with it i hope ugh, ugh. preferably I, with like very thick gloves on you hope so <laughs> oh man well i mean were you disappointed that it wasn't a body part i was a little bit i would it seemed to be the perfect size bag for um you know maybe like a hand i or a foot i is that so much to ask for? 
Right. We, we just want to find body parts so we can be part of an active investigation. That's all there is. Right. I just want to be a footnote in an investigation uh, as the person who found the foot or the, the hand. And yeah, I just, I think that would be fun. Yeah. But also yeah. horrifying. Honestly, I, I'm sure that there are people who have actually in real life discovered body parts. Like remember those, um, what was it? Those, those TikTok kids that they were like, they found a, a suitcase floating in the ocean. Well, I don't remember that, but what I remember is when Pokemon Go first came out, there were people, cause like people were going outside, they're walking around in the woods trying to catch these Pokemon. And I remember reading two cases where people trying to find a Pokemon came across dead bodies. Whoa, I have not heard that. Yeah, one was that... in a swamp down in Florida. Um, and the Shocker. other one was just like in the woods, which wow, it got people to exercise and it got murders possibly solved. <laughs> so bless you, Pokemon Go. Yeah. Wow, who knew it could be so? You know, if we just had uh, people just wandering around in remote areas all the time, we might we might discover all the bodies. Yes, yes. Um, as a country kid who grew up on a farm, who wandered through cornfields for fun, as a five year old, <laughs> if, if if more five year olds would do that, maybe more <laughs> cases would be solved. Oh my gosh. Although I, I hear you're never supposed to like wander into a cornfield because you could no. get lost. Yeah, it's a terrible idea. Like yeah. why how I survived, your guess is good as mine, because people do get lost and they have like they have heat strokes, they get disoriented, they get confused. Um but yeah, I I'm here. You're you made it. You are living proof that you can survive the cornfield. Yes, I was like the literal children of the corn. Yeah. <laughs> Just out there living my best childhood out in you, the Maybe field. you were the chosen one. You were chosen by the by the creature the, or the, the one who walks behind the stalks or isn't. Yeah, it's something like, it that. Something like that. I feel like that sounds too rhymy. Yes. The, but it's or walks behind the rose. That's what it was. Although if they had said the one who walks behind the stalks. You know, it's sort of that whole rhyming thing. It gets in people's head. I feel like they could have been way more successful as a murderous little cult if they had, um, if it was a little catchier. Just got to rhyme, kids. Yeah. It's like the whole, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Like, yes. everybody remembers that. They still do. It's been, all, you know, 25 years. Yes. Or if I sit, <laughs> I fit. <laughs> yeah, if it, yeah. <laughs> or is it the other way around? If I fits, I sit. <laughs> yes. Yep. 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 Um, well, uh, without further ado, I am very excited to share a tale with everyone. Um, however, before we get into that, I would like to remind our listeners that we are on Facebook and Instagram at Dark and Devious Podcast. And we are currently trying to get out of our social bubble of listeners and much more into the worldwide um, audience. Uh, 
So we are working on that. If you or anyone you know has any tips that you would like to pass along to us, feel free to um, email us at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we're still a baby podcast. We, we're uh, needing as many listeners and pointers and little bits of help that we can get. So we're more than happy to reach out and talk with all of you about how we can get our podcast out there to more listeners. Yeah. So, um, well, before we dive in to this tale, how about a word from our sponsor? That sounds great. Okay, Chris. So as I, I don't want to be too braggadocious, but as I am in Hawaii, as our listeners know, I thought it might be um, a good idea to look into something dark and devious that took place on the islands. I was hoping you would be saying that. I mean, it can't just all be hibiscus flowers and sunshine. There's gotta be a dark underside to this beautiful chain of islands. Yeah, there sure is. It's not always sunny in paradise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's... That's what we should name the episode. I love it. That's the name. Okay, we've we've decided. That's All nice. right. So um, I originally was going to go down a well-known case, which was the Honolulu Strangler. Oh. Um, however, um, I want to save that for another day because while okay. looking for uh, Hawaiian tragedies, I came across an oldie but a goodie. Interesting. All right. Excited to hear what. Yes. So we are going to be talking about the 1931 Massey case. Now is that M with M like it as in Mary or N as in Nancy? M as in Mary. So Massey. Massey. Okay. For my farmer listeners, it's like a Massey tractor. (laughs) (laughs) I still got my country roots somewhere. Oh, yes, you do. Okay, so, but before we get into it, I want to give a very brief history of Hawaii. While I was researching the history of Hawaii, I realized that I could do a whole entire episode just on the history of Hawaii, because much like any land that was settled and occupied by Westerners, there's a whole lot of travesties that came along the way. So I have a very brief history and I plan on giving a deep dive into the dark settlement of Hawaii later on in our podcast life. It's it's very kind of unsavory the way that the United States acquired Hawaii, basically. Yes, uh, you mean stole? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. Okay, so The first settlers came to Hawaii sometime between 124 and 1120 AD. They were Polynesian explorers who had traveled over 2000 miles by just canoes and they only used stars as their guide. Better than GPS. Oh yeah, for sure, stars. (laughs) The stars align, right? Um, So reason for them embarking on such a brave journey are still relatively a mystery, but it's concluded that they just wanted to grow their, uh, their territorial reign. The Hawaiian civilization was governed under multiple different chiefs as they settled amongst the various islands. 
some of the most notorious first rulers of the Hawaiian Islands pre-European settlement were Liloa, Hakau, and Umia Liloa, all of whom were related and inherited to the throne. Europeans led by British explorer James Cook were among the initial imperialistic groups to arrive in the Hawaiian Islands in 1778. However, Spanish historians and some other researchers state that the Spanish captain Roy Lopez de Villalobos was the first European to see the islands in 5042. Being that the islands were en route linking the Philippines with Mexico across the ocean. Within five years after Cook's arrival, European military technology helped the ruler Kamehameha I conquer and unify all of the islands for the first time, which established the Kingdom of Hawaii in 1795. The kingdom was prosperous and important for its agriculture and strategic location in the Pacific. American immigration began almost immediately after Cook's arrival, led by Protestant missionaries with a mission to convert who they saw as heathen natives to Christianity. I imagine that uh, also part of that first wave was just like your aunt and uncle kind of characters be like, oh, we just wanted to get away from the cold. <laughs> <laughs> right, just those snowbirds, you know? Yeah, those snowbirds, it's like all of the missionaries, explorers and snowbirds. Yes, I agree. So much like some, but it's important to not note that all Native Americans, when Europeans began settlements in New England, the Native Hawaiians, um, again, not all, believed that this new relationship would help them prosper and they embraced their new neighbors. Americans set up plantations to grow sugar. Their methods of plantation farmer required substantial labor so waves of permanent immigrants came from Japan, China, and the Philippines to work in the fields. The government of Japan, they gave special protection to their people, which comprised about 25% of the Hawaiian population by 1896. However, with all the new settlers arriving from various parts of the globe, disease started to spread like wildfire. The native population consumed to new diseases, uh, smallpox in particular, and their population took a huge hit. Uh, they declined from 300,000 people in the 1770s to around 60,000 in the 1850s, and ultimately just 24,000 Native Hawaiians remained alive in the year 1920. Holy moly, that is a huge hit. Yes, I mean, it, we saw we see it time and time again when you know, when the Spanish came to South America, the Aztecs got wiped out by disease. When the Europeans came to New England, uh, they wiped, they got wiped out, you know, as well. And it's just, it's just so hard when you're being faced with new germs that you were never exposed to before. Right. Wow. It makes me wonder why, why didn't things go the other way? Like, I wonder why Europeans weren't wiped out by diseases that would have I circulated had, among, but I maybe had, some did. Yeah, maybe some did. And also, um, you know, I have a feeling that natives, they just lived in a cleaner environment. You know, the European cities and the colonies in America, you know, they're just like, they're just throwing their feces out the window. You got animal, 
animal, you know, rot everywhere. It's dirty. Whereas like, like the natives. The big thing was would be like selling the drinking water. Like the, when you don't understand that, hey, why is everybody getting dysentery? It's because wherever you're thro throwing your waste is too close to your water supply. Exactly. So maybe like when settlers go into a native uh, populated area, they just bring more germs than what are already there to be exposed to. That very well could be. Maybe if we have an epidemiologist who listened to the podcast. Yes. Please feel it... free to correct us. Yeah. yeah. Educate us, please. Yes. Okay, so as the native population was dwindling, they also were losing land, power, and rights. Americans within the kingdom government rewrote the kingdom's constitution, uh, severely curtailing the power of Hawaiian rulers and disenfranchising the rights of most native Hawaiians and Asian citizens to vote, uh, mostly by placing high property and income requirements uh, to be qualified as a voter. This gave a sizable advantage to the plantation owners. Queen Lily Kalani attempted to restore royal powers in 1893, but was placed under house arrest by businessmen with the help from the US military. Against the queen's wishes, the Republic of Hawaii was formed for a short time. The government agreed on behalf of Hawaii to join the US in 1898 as the territory of Hawaii. And in 1959, so after the Pearl Harbor attack, the islands became the official state of Hawaii. That's um, crazy that even when, you know, like the US had a military base there and that they were obviously getting a lot of benefits from having control over Hawaii, that it still didn't have statehood exactly. until, way, until way after World War II. Right, I mean, I mean 41, I believe, was Pearl Harbor. I yes. So, um, so yeah, that's a whole, almost two decades after that it became a state. That's wild. Uh, yeah, very close to two decades. Yeah, it's uh, going back to our uh, Harry Truman episode um, about having uh, people who are U.S. citizens who don't have a representative in U.S. government. It's it's just wild to think that for so right. long they didn't have anybody to speak on their behalf of the people of Hawaii. Yeah, and that's why the U.S. government was able to rewrite the Hawaiians' constitution. You know, it was, they were a kingdom. They had established their own laws and uh, ways of living. And the U.S. just swooped right in and said, nope, sorry, this is how it's going to happen now. And there's nothing you can do about it, essentially. I just imagine them being like, wait, a woman's going to lead you guys? No, 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 no. Let's fix that. We can't right. have that. I know. Uh, frustrating. Yep. So again, um, there's a lot more that could have gone into the history of Hawaii, but I just think I need to do justice and dedicate a whole episode to all the turmoil that took place while Hawaii was being settled and conquered and eventually becoming um, a U.S. state. That's a good taste test of what's to come down the road. And also gives a little bit of context to what you'll be talking about today. 
Exactly. Um, and with that, it is time to introduce the Massey case. All right. Okay, so the Massey case, or I guess I should be referring to it as the Massey trial, rather. Um, so Hawaii, between the world wars, uh, was viewed by Americans as a Garden of Eden. It was blessed with a gentle climate, cool breezes, and sandy beaches. Can you confirm that, I take it? Um, I definitely can, because remember my goal of getting three shades darker? <laughs> it's, it, is, it is accomplished. I, it's happening. Yes, it's happening, and I'm thriving. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, and probably still today, Hawaii was a choice duty assignment for officers and men of the United States Navy. However, not everyone has the same impression of these beautiful islands. Lieutenant Tommy Massey, uh, his given name was Thomas, but we were referred to him as Tommy as that's how he was known, was an Annapolis graduate and a young submarine officer. He was stationed here and found Hawaii to be the ideal environment. But his wife, Talia, had a much different opinion. Talia Fortescue was born February 14th Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. 1911 in Washington, D.C. Her mother was Grace Hubbard Fortescue, and her father was Granville Roland Fortescue. Her mother was a direct descendant of Alexander Graham Bell, and her father was a cousin of Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. So, well yeah. connected people. Yeah, they like had good connections, probably had a uh, pretty big ego, I would assume. <laughs> They were very well off. Money. <laughs> oh yeah, old money for sure. Um, so they were well off and they thought highly of their statuses in society. At the young age of 16, Talia married Navy Lieutenant Tommy Hedges Massey, uh, which he was a Navy Lieutenant. So that was like a perfect match for this wealthy heiress daughter. Also, uh, I can imagine senior prom would be so already easily figured out. Like, you definitely don't have to worry about being dumped uh, before the dance. Right? If you're, if you're married when you're going to senior prom, I mean, and, and I'm sure with her money, she had like the ball of, or the dress of the ball. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. She would have the best outfit at the party. <laughs> so in 1930s, 30, Tommy was assigned to be stationed at Pearl Harbor. In 1931, after Talia and Tommy took up residence in Honolulu and Talia had done the usual sightseeing, she settled into a life which she found increasingly boring and meaningless. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, you'll get, a, you'll get a better idea of this, of this chick's character, but I mean, she sounds like a prude. <laughs> she doesn't sound like a good time honestly no no and she's not you'll see <laughs> um she considered herself above the rest of the officers wives and soon became an outcast <laughs> <laughs> talia and tommy's marriage which wasn't really successful to start with to her the life of a navy wife oh that's a nice rhyme the life of a navy wife um <laughs> was suffocating and meaningless, and she had grown tired of the endless gossip and bridge games that filled her days. On the evening of September 12th, 1931, the Masseys attended a Navy ball at the Alawai Inn 
a Waikiki nightclub, which I'm staying in the neighborhood of Waikiki. Um, it's like the most infamous when you Google search Honolulu. It's the longest beach with all the high rises. So it makes sense that this is where they would go to socialize. Do you think the club is still around or probably long gone? It's long gone. However, there is a place that I've been to multiple times on this trip, which will come about later. Ooh, okay. So the Ala Wai Inn was just as about what the ever so pessimistic Talia had expected. It was a small two-story building, and by 10 p.m. it was crammed wall to wall with people dancing or seated in small booths having drinks and smoking cigars. Now I can only think of COVID restrictions. <laughs> that is so, like, that's against regulations. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and right now, um, Hawaii is open, but there's like four cases a day. Because, oh, wow. Because they've been like so smart about yeah, everything. Like we had to have two ne- negative COVID tests before arriving. And it's just... They were so smart. They handled it very well. Well, that's good, especially because I can't imagine that Hawaii has the infrastructure to handle a massive outbreak of something just that's because true. it's so isolated. That's very true. Do you um, ever like? Do you watch movies now and you see like people <laughs> close together and you're like, wait, this doesn't seem right. Like I yeah. feel like no, same yeah, situation. Yeah. Not so much movies, but like I've seen like some reality TV shows where I'm like, like, why are they at a restaurant without a mask? What are they doing? (laughs) So Tali and Tommy had stopped talking early in the evening because she was unhappy that he had dragged her to the event at the Alawai Inn in the first place. She downed cocktail after cocktail at the bar, wondering how soon she would be able to leave. So maybe this is like the senior prom and that but she didn't want to go with her husband yeah maybe so after about an hour and a half uh talia saw that tommy was ignoring her and was dancing with the wife of one of his shipmates oh yep <laughs> trouble in paradise yeah so talia did what she had done many times in the past she left the party with no intention of apologizing She walked along Kalakuawa Avenue in an easterly direction and then turned south onto John Ina Road, a quiet street which many couples referred to as Lover's Lane. After 15 minutes or so, she noticed that a car with men in it had pulled up alongside her and was keeping pace with her as she walked. Then, according to her, everything happened rapidly. The car halted and two men sprang out. One of them was more than six feet tall and was powerfully built. He came around behind her, punched her viciously in the jaw, nearly breaking it. Whoa. Mm -hmm. The two men then dragged her into the rear seat of the car and sped off towards a dense growth and shrubbery of Alamoana Park, which Alamoana Park is where I've gone to almost daily. It's beautiful. It's along the beach. And to know that this beautiful place that I've been going is the center point of the story is like, it's, it puts a little damper on this place that I enjoy so much. So in the park, Talia wept and pleaded with her kidnappers to release her, but they only laughed at her. She offered them money, but their only reply was to strike her again and again. When they reached a secluded area, 
Tali was sexually assaulted several times by several of the men. The men finally released her and she staggered along Ala Moana Boulevard, frantically searching for help. At last, a car came along and she flagged it down. In the car were two fellow Navy couples who were on their way to a restaurant for a late night dinner. The couples offered to take Talia to the police station or to the hospital, but Talia insisted they take her home, mumbling through her fractured jaw that her husband would take care of it. Arriving home, Talia discovered that Tommy had not yet come back. She took a bath and laid down on their couch, waiting for him to return. By this time, Tommy had left the inn with some friends and had gone to one of their homes to continue the party. At about 2 a.m., he telephoned Talia. Tommy almost did not recognize her voice as she mumbled through her injured jaw. Speaking was difficult and painful for her, but she finally managed to say a few words. Come home, something terrible has happened. That sounds so horrific. Why would you be like, oh, I want to go home. I don't want to take care of my possibly broken jaw right away. That's right. so scary. And that's a very good question. So when Tommy arrived home, he was shocked at the sight of his wife. Her face was bloody, her cheeks were bruised, her lips were puffy and blue, and her jaw, he said, appeared twisted. Tommy embraced her and listened in shock and anger at the description of her attack. He did not waste a moment and called the police immediately. When they arrived, Talia's report of the incident was a bit sketchy. Although she was not sure of the number of assailants, she said that they were all Hawaiian natives. She also said that she would not be able to identify any of them, and she could only describe their car as being an old model. The police realized that this crime would be a challenge to solve. So let's leave Talia and Tommy for a moment and go back in time a few hours, picking up the activities of five young men who would soon be at the center of the incident. Horace Ida, a young Japanese man, had borrowed his sister's car and had attended a luau with his pals, Joe Kahahawai, Benny Ahakuelo, David Takai, and Henry Chang. And it is important to note that his sister's car was only two years old. Yeah, and, okay. Um, so a little background about these five young men so we get to know them a little bit more personally. Horace Ida was a 24-year-old man of Japanese descent. He had just returned to Hawaii to help his mother and sister around the house. He had been living in California, hoping to find a job. It was the first time he'd been back to Honolulu since his father's death in 1929. Horace's real name was Shomatsu, but his classmates had nicknamed him Shorty. <laughs> Joe Kaha Hawaii. He was born Joseph Kaha Hawaii, and he was a very large man and nicknamed Big Joe by his best friends. Very practical nickname. Yep. He was a 20-year-old native Hawaiian and the leader of a loose association of boys who called themselves the School Street Gang. He was also nicknamed Kalani by members of his St. Louis College football team. He grew up in a section of Honolulu called Iwaili, which is a working class area with a red light district. He never finished high school at St. Louis College. So it's like a high school that's called a college. Okay. Um, but he wore his football ring proudly. Ben Ahakuelo 
was also a 20-year-old native Hawaiian and had already made a local name for himself for good reasons. His football skill earned him the nickname Flash Ahakuelo, and his boxing talent won him a place representing Hawaii in the National Amateur Boxing Championship of 1931, which was supposed to be hosted in Madison Square Gardens, New York. He was very popular amongst his peers. Henry Chang, a 22-year-old who was part Native Hawaiian and part Chinese, had recently returned to Hawaii from a job working on a salmon farm in Alaska for the last 13 months. That's got to be a big change. <laughs> oh, for sure. Growing up in a beautiful tropic climate to waking up every day to negative 10 degrees. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he had returned home uh, because his parents needed uh, some financial support and they re were relying on him to tend to the cows and chickens on their farm. Lastly, David Takai. David Takai uh, was a 21-year-old Japanese descent man he was the only suspect of Talia, or the only suspect that Talia failed to identify later. He was called Mac by his friends. He lived close to the other boys in the Paloma district. And like the others, um, his family was struggling to find work during the tough times of the Great Depression. So there's our five gentlemen. Okay. On the night of the event at about 12.30 a.m., Horace Ida suggested a uh, that they call it a night from the luau that they attended earlier, if you recall. So he and his friends piled into his sister's car and departed from the luau. As they passed through an intersection in downtown Honolulu, Horace barely menaced colliding with another driver coming from the opposite direction. There was no contact between the two cars, but both drivers stopped and everyone piled out to argue about the incident. Well, I mean, what else is there to do on a, a to, to say what day of the week it was? Um, I just had the date. I don't have, I imagine it's a weekend. Um, yeah. Just like Saturday night. Like, let's argue over traffic. Yeah. Midnight, 1230 a.m. You oh. know, what else is there to do? <laughs> so the occupants of the other car were a Mr. and Mrs. Peoples. Mrs. Peoples was voicing her opinion on Horace Ida's driving skill when Big Joe Kahawaii lost his temper and punched her in the face. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. I imagine like there might've been some drinking going on. It was That's late in the night. Um, and maybe he was hot tempered. I don't know. I could see all of these things being a factor, especially if somebody said something that may have uh, rubbed someone the wrong way. Mm hmm for sure. I mean, Mrs. and Mr. People um, were white. These were all, you know, people of color. Who knows what happened? Maybe a racial slur could have been thrown out. I think that would have been deserving of a punch to the face. Oh, yes, I, I'm in yeah. support of that. <laughs> um, so Mrs. Peoples uh, was equal to the challenge, though. And to everyone's surprise, she slugged him right back in the mouth. Wow. The incident could have erupted into a full-on bra, but um, cooler heads prevailed, and they went their separate way. The peoples drove off to the police station and reported the incident. Huh. At the station, the peoples gave Horace Ida's license plate as 58895, and the police put out an all-points bulletin for the car and its occupants. At about the same time, 
the police learn of the attacks in Ala Moana Park. So naturally, they assumed that the occupants of the Ida car were likely the perpetrators of the assault on Talia Massey. It just doesn't seem to add up already that, okay, these people who were involved in a traffic dispute would then be like, you think that you'd want to be like, okay, we had our brush with trouble this evening. Let's just get the heck out of here and call it a night. Yeah. I, I don't see the motivation to be like, oh, let's also, let's up the ante and do something even more horrible. It just, it doesn't seem, especially with so many people in the car, I can't imagine a consensus like that uh, coming, like, coming through. It, no. I'm immediately skeptical. Yeah, that's very valid points. Um, so Horace, Ida, and his friends were eventually located through the car's license plate and were brought before Talia at the police station. She was unable to identify any of them. It is important to note that Horace Ida was wearing a brown leather jacket when he was brought in and when she saw him. When asked the license number of the assailant's car, she did not remember it. However, she later overheard the plate number 58895 being discussed by officers at the police station. The next day, under further questioning, Talia's story miraculously began to change. She now suddenly remembered that one of her assailants had been wearing a brown leather jacket and the license plate of the assailant's car was 58805. Only one digit was different from the number of horse Ida's plate. So, I just, oh boy, it's not like you're just like, oh, all of a sudden the number just popped into my head a day later. Right. I mean, I do understand that sometimes people's memories are brought back by seeing something or hearing something. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's just as, it's too convenient. Yeah, it's, it's very suspicious. So to the police, the case against Ida's, Horace Ida and his friends just began to look stronger. The five men insisted they were not part of any assault on a lone white woman walking through the darkness of John Eater Road. They explained their movements. They had an alibi of being at the luau earlier in the evening, but not for when the attack occurred. So the police were not persuaded by their claims of innocence. And the five young men were indicted and charged with sexual assault and kidnapping. Does not sound good. While the citizens of Honolulu waited for the trial to begin, rumors began to develop and spread through the city. There were those who whispered that Tally had not been attacked at all. It was said that she was having an illicit relationship with one of the five suspects and that she was on her way for a rendezvous with him. When she found him in the company of four drunken friends, her temper, which everyone knew she had, came to arise. It was said that she and her lover got into an argument, which turned physical, and that she concocted the whole story just to get back at him. It was also speculated that Tali was having an affair with one of Tommy's shipmates. Gossip spread that when Tommy came home after the party, he found his wife and his friend engaging in sexual acts, and that it was Tommy who beat up his wife. Oh boy, there are all these different possibilities. And yeah. 
All of them sound at least a little bit more plausible than the one of the the five random guys that... Yes. Um, And it is important to note that... uh, Remember, Talia said that she was picked up by um, two Navy couples mm-hmm. that dropped her off at home. These, these two couples, they were never like brought forward. They never came forward. They never say they found her once it was made public that you know this Navy wife was a victim of an assault. That's so makes, a very interesting piece of the puzzle. Makes you wonder, did this, cup, did this car of couples exist? Yeah. It's a small is, island. It's not like they weren't going to hear about it. And especially if it's if they're members of the same community, like the Navy community in Hawaii, then you think that they would, it would be very easy to find them. Yes. It, you know, you'd ask around. I'm sure that, that anybody who would be kind enough to pick up a woman in distress and get her back home would also be more than willing to help out with the investigation. It And I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to just be like, yeah, this is like, we picked her up. This is what she told us. Exactly. It, it would be so simple. But the fact that they were nowhere to be found is very, very suspect. Exactly. So there's that tidbit. Rumors aside, um, and in an actual truth, while under examination of Talia's conditions, the examining physician and his nurse found no signs of sexual assault on Talia. There were no bruises on her body except for those on her face, and medical examination saw no signs of vaginal or anal tear or trauma. Interesting. The plot thickens. Yeah. So despite the medical findings, the five accused men were brought to trial in November 1931. The entire white community was in full support of the Masseys. One of the most vocal and influential members of the white community at the time was Admiral Yates Sterling, commander of the 14th District Naval, or 14th Naval District. Admiral Sterling came from a wealthy and influential Maryland family, and he was raised to regard all white women to be respected. His mentality does not reflect all of the white citizens of Hawaii during the 1930s, but it is accurate to say that there was a lot of racial tension between the white residents and the Hawaiian natives, as well as the Asian immigrants. Why does it always seem that the the people who end up in places of power always oftentimes have these really kind of awful views that kind of overarch the whole community like that? I, it's, it's like, why couldn't it be like, oh yeah, the guy who runs the show around here was just a really nice guy and he cared about everybody equally. That's never the case, it seems, at this. I know. <laughs> at least in this point in history. It's, it's so very true. We can get into that a whole nother day because <laughs> there's a lot to say about that. Yes. So Sterling considered all non-whites as, quote, childish, unreliable, and socially inferior. He preferred a military government for the islands, and he wasn't pleased that the Hawaiians still had some say. When first informed of the assault, he said his first inclination was to seize the brutes and string them up on the trees. In his view, which again was shared by a large majority of the white residents, 
coolies, as he referred to the Chinese, had overrun the islands and had mongrelized the population. But he apparently found no cause for complaint about the insurge of white people. So the trial began in an atmosphere of prejudice and recrimination. The main testimony came from Talia, who told her story through much sobbing and weeping. She withstood a withering cross-examination by the defense counsel and adhered to the essentials of her version of the attack. The jury deliberated for four days without arriving at a verdict. At the beginning I'm of the- surprised. Yeah. I, I mean, I was too, but I think just the lack of medical evidence was a big sway in this. Yeah, that's a big hole in her story that- And, uh, and again, as I mentioned, although there was racial tension and a lot of white people uh, were not so kind of the natives, it, w it did not represent everybody. Right. Did, uh, did, was there any kind of information on what the jury looked like? Was, was this like an all white jury, do you think? Or I have, I have a strong feeling, I didn't actually see statistics, but I have a strong feeling that it's 1930s in a place where racism is already elevated. Women are still second-class citizens themselves. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling it was an all white jury, if not an all white male jury. That is probably the reality of this situation. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the fifth day, they notified the judge that they were hopelessly deadlocked. They were a hung jury. The defendants were released to await a second trial. Wow. That's, and that, that's what really sucks. It's like, you have to go through all this all over again. But will they? The forces of prejudice and injustice began to take control, and the second trial was shaping up to be the most sensational trial ever held in Hawaii. While Hawaii waited for the second trial, tension and violence began to grow. First, Horace Ida was seized on a Honolulu street by a carload of sailors. He was beaten, clubbed, and whipped with leather belts. These sailors faced no repercussions. What? So, yes. <sighs> Um, shortly after Ida's attack, Talia's mother, Grace Bell Fortescue, flew into Honolulu with guns blazing. Fearing another hung jury, or God forbid, an acquittal at the second trial, Mrs. Fortescue and Tommy put their heads together to decide what they could do to bring who they thought were obviously guilty men to justice. Since there was no indication that any of them were going to confess, they decided that one of the five accused men would have to be persuaded to confess. To this end, they recruited two young sailors to help them. Tommy apparently gave no thought to the fact that he was using his rank to compel the two sailors to join a conspiracy to commit a terrible crime. This is a very bad person. <laughs> oh yes, both Exploiting your power to then also persuade a false confession in an assault case. This mm -hmm. is, that's pretty so, low. It is. So early one morning, as defendant Joe Kahawai, Big Joe, we'll find out. Really? So all of Hawaii was outraged at the outcome of the first trial. The non-white community thought the five should have been acquitted and the white community thought they should have been convicted. Who was a native Hawaiian 
and the darkest skin toned of all the five men, he left to report to a court official as required by the terms of his bail. On his way there, Talia's mother, Tommy, and the two sailors kidnapped him. They took Joe to Mrs. Fortescue's bungalow that she had rented in the hills far above Honolulu. The four kidnappers, though they would never describe themselves in those terms, began to interrogate their prisoner. It will never be known exactly what happened at the bungalow, but Tommy would later say that he and Joe were seated facing each other as Tommy pointed his loaded semi-automatic 45 caliber service pistol towards him. Through the early stages of the interrogation, Joe protested his innocence, but under Tommy's relentless interrogation, threats and beating, Joe broke and admitted to the attack on Talia. I can imagine he probably thought he was going to die. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that he was, like, of course, if someone has got a loaded pistol pointed at your face and is like, you're going to confess to this thing, be like, the only alternative is like, well, he might shoot me and I might die. That's insane. I can't believe that that could ever be admissible. So I guess, tell me what happened in the aftermath of this false confession. So unfortunately, because the foursome kidnappers never were like too open about what exactly happened in the bungalow, we don't really know the chain of events. And Tommy would never admit that he deliberately shot Joe, but he did state that he was, quote, holding the pistol when it fired. So again, because of the refusal to cooperate and tell, you know, the actual chain of events, it is unclear as to why and what level of violence had escalated for Joe to be murdered. Oh man, I, so here he was, he was interrogating him under the presence of a firearm with assistance of at least a couple other people and somehow in that interrogation the gun goes off exactly and and again like they say that he admitted to the attack under interrogation but so there's not they're not really you know uh too open to telling what actually occurred so did he really admit or are they saying that he admitted right what it's what it sounds like is that they were frustrated with him and his him not saying what they wanted him to say that they were just gonna i feel like he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't because they just wanted they just wanted to take out their anger and frustration on somebody and here was the perfect target and exactly oh gosh and um also then if he is like yes okay i did it then that gives them that gives them the motivation to be like, see, he did it. And I was just so angry with him telling me this that I fired. Right. So exactly. Either way, they were going to end up with a dead guy on their hands mm-hmm. in whatever, whatever the situation was going to end up being. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wicked. It's that <sighs> dark and devious. It is. It is. I hate it. 
so even though we don't really know what happened, we do know that one of these four people were behind the murder of Joe Kahawai. Debating what to do, the group eventually decided to jump Joe's, dump Joe's body off of Coco Head, uh, which at the time was a very desolate area away from urban Honolulu. They knew that he would eventually be found, but they believed that it was unlikely that anyone would care. Wow. So, yeah, so in their minds, they're only thinking about the racist white people, like let alone all the other native Hawaiians and the immigrants and the non-racist white people who clearly would care. Right, and, and, and also this is somebody who is involved in a major case, like someone's gonna go looking for him. Exactly. And also this is a human being with a family Yep. It, it's oh, it's like you think of the mothers in that situation where mm-hmm. their their baby goes out and they don't know where they're going and then all of a sudden you get the news that your child is dead because yeah. how he i mean they must have been fairly young right this yeah like, he was 20 Oh my gosh, could you imagine your life just being over at 20 years old? Like, Donzo, Finito, like, you, there's no coming back from that. I know. It's too short. Yeah. So the foursome wrapped Joe's body in a sheet and put him in Mrs. Uh, Fortescue's rented car. So at the time, there were still, like, shades in the car on the windows. So they pulled down the shades to hide the interior. I mean, they could have just done a weekend at Bernie's type situation, just put <laughs> sunglasses on him and a hat. Sure, why not? Nobody would have questioned that, maybe. Right. So the motorcyclist cop uh, pulled over the car just to check out because he thought maybe Joe was hiding inside. Um, but ultimately, he discovered the body and the four were immediately arrested on suspicion of murder. I would say... The suspicion is pretty strong there. I'd say so. Not everyone drives around with a dead body. Yeah. yeah and you can't be like, we were driving to the hospital. No. <laughs> with a body wrapped in sheets. Yeah. We were, we were, uh, no, I can't even think of a ridiculous reason why someone would do that. Right. Yeah. So Tommy and Mrs. Fortescue stated at the station that they had done a fine and noble thing. They believed that Tommy had preserved his wife's honor. However, police were on the lookout for Joe because again, remember he was supposed to be attending a meeting that was mandated for his uh, release on probation. So when a police motorcyclist uh, saw this car with all of its blinds down, he saw it as something suspicious. And it was nighttime, right? No, this is the day. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Did this in the middle of the day? They kidnapped him in the morning. Um, The interrogation happened throughout the afternoon. So late afternoon, early evening. And the honor of all white women in the Hawaiian Islands. Mrs. Fortescue protested, we did not break the law. We helped the law. Oh my gosh. This is just the most insane line of thinking I know. Like we just murdered someone. But we're good citizens. But we're but we we were doing we were righteously murdering someone. Those are the are are some of the most annoying murderers. <laughs> they sure are. 
So the four conspirators were genuinely astounded when they were arrested and indicted for kidnapping and murder. They truly thought that they should be congratulated and offered the heartfelt thanks of all right thinking people. That's just absolutely bonkers. I can't get over how off the wall this, this line of thinking is. I know. I want to know their psychology. Like, I want someone to study them. <laughs> yeah. So Mrs. Fortescue was in denial. It took her nearly a week to recognize the gravity of the charges facing them and to realize that the authorities were serious about persecuting her. Once the realization sank in, she arranged to retain the most famous defense attorney in the USA, Mr. Clarence Darrow. Although oh my gosh. I just realized, I think I have a book on this. <laughs> Ooh, let me know. So although Darrow had retired from the practice of law because of age and ill health, he was intrigued by the issues in the case. Also, the offer of $25,000, which is roughly $400,000 in today's currency. Whoa, that's what, a pretty penny. Remember, the Fortescue's were loaded. The big payout was also incentive. At the murder and kidnapping trials, Mrs. Fortescue and the others hardly disputed the basic facts of the case. Again, they were proud of what they've done. But when the state rested, Mrs. Darrow rose to address the court and dropped a legal bomb. He would attempt to show that at the time of the shooting of Joe Kawahawai, Tommy Massey was temporarily insane. Did what? She... Oh, okay. Yep. Playing the old insanity plea. The chief witness to Tommy's insanity were Tommy himself testifying in his own behalf and two white male psychiatrists brought from the mainland. After several days of trial and argument and much medical testimony from the psychiatrists, the jury retired to consider its verdict. That's got to be really a tall order because here you've got this legendary attorney, Clarence Darrow, and that you've got all these impressive expert witnesses that are pointing to this whole temporary insanity defense. That's got, even though it, like us having the hindsight to look at this from our 2021 perspective, being like, this sounds absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that you were like on the way to go dump the body somewhere shows that you were guilty and that you knew what you were doing because you thought to clean up the body man this is like i it's it's got a very tall order to it was a different time you know it was a different time in a different uh political climate yeah very a very lot, a lot of people not being treated equally and getting the justice they deserved, so. Right, well, I am on the edge of my seat to find out how this panned out. All right, well, we're almost there. So similar to uh, when Talia's trial for against the five men took place, the verdict took a few days. And when it was announced, all defendants were found guilty of manslaughter. 
with a recommendation huh? of leniency. Mm -hmm. When the uh, verdict was announced, Talia apparently burst into tears, could not control her sobbing, and stormed out of the courtroom. Wow. Okay. So was the 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 charge was it for murder or manslaughter or was it like a bunch of charges and then that's the one that they were found guilty on? Uh, they were found guilty of manslaughter. Okay, so there wasn't a murder charge. Correct. Oh, interesting. I'm mm -hmm. surprised because I feel like it would be really, really a lot easier to prove a premeditated first degree murder charge. But then again, you know, maybe there were the prosecutor was playing like, well, what can I reasonably get them on that people would be willing to convict them? Because I feel like for a white Navy officer to be held to the consequences of a first degree murder charge in this climate would be a really tough sell, even if there is a ton of evidence, just because yeah. I think people would have been outraged over the you know the the whole distaste for the affair yes yeah so well um after the verdict was announced mrs fortescue was quoted as saying i felt all along that we would be unable to get a fair trial american womanhood means nothing even to the white people of honolulu all four were sentenced to 10 years imprisonment However, amid a storm of protest, the governor of Hawaii, Lawrence Judd, immediately commuted their sentences to one hour served in his office, complete with tea and snacks. You are joking. That is such, that is such an abomination, a miscarriage of justice. Oh my, yeah, like, I mean, the only way it could have been even worse if, he just said, you know, your record's clean. There you go. I mean, oh. at least it's on the record, but still, they deserved those 10 years. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I, and it's like, just when you think like, oh, they're going to, they're going to get the punishment that they deserve. And then only to have, I, I imagine that there's probably some corruption involved there because why else would the governor also like kind of lay his, well, I guess he was appointed, right? Because Correct. it was a territory. Right. So uh, another reason why representative democracy is really important it because is. he didn't have to face voters. So, because if he, if, if he was an elected official, he would have had to answer to, the voters went and he, his career would have been over because all of the native Hawaiians, all of the uh, immigrant community there would all be against him on this one thing. Exactly. <sighs> but that's what happened, which sucks. That is very, very uh, infuriating. And mm -hmm. yet another reason why, again, we, uh, we need a say in who runs the show across the board and wherever you live, everybody should have a say in 
their government and and the rulemaking process because otherwise agree. this kind of stuff happens oh my gosh um but you do make me want to my true crime bookcase is right next to me here i just want to take a quick look i bet i can find well well, hang on. I'm not quite Oh, okay. Done. Oh, there's more. There's a denouement. Okay. <laughs> okay. So within a month after the trial, Talia, Tommy, Mrs. Fortescue, and the two sailors who assisted in the kidnapping and murder of Joe Kahawai left Hawaii and returned to the mainland. The unfortunate couple at the center found no peace and divorced soon after arriving back to the mainland 48. A couple years later, Talia, in an unsuccessful attempt at suicide, slashed her wrist during a transatlantic cruise. She maybe did marry. Uh, maybe a little guilty conscience there. Maybe, but she always seemed kind of troubled. Okay. Um, she did marry a second time. Um, however, on July 2nd, 1963, she died in West Palm Beach uh, from an overdose of barbiturates. Tommy so it's like a very a very unhappy life from there on out. And she she was very troubled. Like yeah. it was clear that she was dealing with something. Um, Tommy left the Navy and took a second wife, and he established a career in business. He passed away in 1987. Grace Hubbard Fortescue, Talia's mother died of natural causes in 1979. They had long lives for they a did. Time. Yeah. They <laughs> did. The surviving four defendants, Horace Ida, David Takai, Henry Chang, and Ben Ahokuelo, were never retried. In the end, though, Talia's most likely fabricated story cost the five suspects dearly. Joseph Kahawai was murdered. Horace Ida bore scars from belt buckles for the rest of his life. And Ben Ahuquelo, Henry Chang, and David Takai lived in the shadow of the case until their deaths. All four surviving men lived under suspicion from the white residents of Honolulu for the rest of their lives. Fortunately, though, the ignorance and prejudice of the 1930s, although it has not completely gone, has dissipated greatly. A more enlightened age has seen how prejudice can snap a nation's strength and render it weak and ineffectual. The Massey case has never been solved, but it still serves as an example of the extremes to which an otherwise intelligent public can be led under false allegations. And that is the unsolved, saddening story of Talia Massey and the five most likely innocent accused men wow that is a very fascinating story and i kind of I, I think what makes it even more intriguing is the fact that it's unsolved so you know do you do you have an opinion on what you think happened which I, do you think is the most likely i think um you know talia and tommy their marriage was on the rocks from the get-go Mm -hmm. she was you know an open alcoholic she was verbally possibly physically abusive to him I my personal opinion is that one night she had had too much to drink uh tempers were high 
an argument got physical and he knew and she knew that he'd be stripped of his military license uh it'd be on their record and make their lives a lot harder exactly exactly and you know racial tension was high on the islands at the time so who better to blame it on but these five men that are already being accused of an assault on another white woman the same night wipe wipe the record clean right it it's uh and and the thing is if they had not been brought in on that whole traffic incident they wouldn't have had anybody to go off of because from the beginning she said that she would not be able to identify who attacked her it i mean i get you know if something terrible were happening to you and it's dark and you know you've got a lot of factors going on there and maybe not being able to tell who your your attackers were but i feel like you would be able to to tell at least some sort of detail it, right i mean the fact that she said that it was an old car and it was yeah. a new car the fact yeah. that there was no no sign of sexual assault on her which yes you can you can sexually assault someone orally but you think she would have came out and said that yeah and then there's the the couples that picked her up that never came forward yeah there's just too many empty slots in this in her story and the fact that that not even all the details line up it it seems like the 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 things that do line up are the things you could really have pinned on anyone on the street at that time it's just too vague and too it just seems like a big coincidence yeah i I'm, I'm thinking that it's probably i would not be surprised if it was if it was Tommy, the husband who had maybe just assaulted her or like, you know, roughed her up and that afterwards they were like, oh, dang, we need to come up with an excuse. We need to come up with some sort of reason why you're banged up and it can't be the truth. Right. Um, and just to be like, some dark shadowy figures came out and attacked me. Of, of course, that seems really believable. Um, mm -hmm. yep. it, yeah. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I would not be surprised if the truth was that it was her husband or, or even that she somehow maybe got injured in her, like in a drunken state and and was too embarrassed and that's possible I, too i didn't think about that yeah I, I i mean that would be even even worse because that it's like oh now somebody had to die because you were careless and so i could see that being a, a possibility too but and, and that would also explain why her husband was so passionate in pursuing the um, one of the of the five men. Yeah. That it, 
because then maybe he would have even not known the truth. Right. So, hmm. It leaves but, a lot of unanswered questions. It is interesting to speculate, though. Yeah. And unfortunately, everyone linked to it is no longer around, so. Right? Yeah, you really ho hope that you'll find, like, a hidden diary or, a, like, a written confession or something. Like, that would be really... Mm -hmm. That'd be cool to find. That would be. But oftentimes people take those secrets to the grave with them, which isn't fair for us true crime lovers. It's not. We need answers. We want, we want solutions. We want answers. Well, um, for this case, um, I did do research, including the article, The Massey Case, Injustice and Courage by David Stannard. Um, Something Terrible Has Happened, the story of Talia Massey by Charles A. Riccio Jr. The Men Accused of Assaulting Talia Masser, author unknown via PBS Hawaii. And then for background on the Hawaiian Islands, I found the article of Brief History of Hawaii by John C. Derrick, very helpful. And then for both coverage of Talia Massey Trials and the History of Hawaii, good old Wikipedia came through. Hopefully a very well-cited It was, it was. <laughs> I made sure to check. So there you have it. That is my current local true crime story and an oldie but a goodie. That was really fascinating. I was trying to find the book on my bookshelf and I'm, I'm not seeing it. Maybe if I find it, maybe next episode I'll, I'll mention it. Cause I know there was something about Clarence Darrow and doing a case in Hawaii. And I, I bet it's about this, but I guess I'll have to dig yeah, through my stuff. I'd love to know. <laughs> well, thank you for, uh, for bringing both the warm weather my way and then also a little bit of a tropical mystery. This was super fascinating and a story that I did not know anything about ahead of this. So well, kudos I'm glad, to you. I'm glad you enjoyed. Um, I hope everyone listening enjoyed. Um, mahalo for listening. <laughs> and if you like us, please, uh, uh, rate and review us wherever you're streaming us. Yes, and like and subscribe and tell your friends. Yes, for sure. And until next time, bye. bye.